Have you ever been wrong before? Good, good, good. You know, I knew we were a great church. I did not know we were perfect. This is, this is good. You know, but the truth of the matter is we all, we've all been wrong before. We all know that. There's been times in life where we're wrong and we're confronted with our wrongness. And when you're confronted with it, you have a decision to make. You can either continue in your ignorance, which is foolish, <laughs> or you can pivot. <laughs> you can make a pivot in life and change and address what you've got wrong. The challenge is, is that sometimes in life, pivots are easy. And sometimes in life, the pivots that life is going to require of us is quite challenging. Because it will require us, it'll force us to change the way we think, change the way we behave. And sometimes there's pivots in life that force us to even change the way we believe. Today we're going to talk about a pivot that I believe for some people here today in service, it's going to be a gigantic pivot for you in your life. For, for two different reasons, and in the end, you'll see what those two reasons are, but it'll be a pivot that for some of you, it may cause you to rethink the way you believe. For others of you, it's going to maybe be a pivot that changes the direction that your life is headed in. So let me introduce where we're going. A few years ago, uh, I had a friend of mine ask me to coffee. <clears throat> And uh, so I, I said yes, and I was looking forward to this coffee time together, and I beat him to the coffee shop, and I was, uh, or no, he beat me, sorry, he beat me to the coffee shop, and as soon as I walked in, I knew I was in trouble, because he had his Bible all laid out with papers and notes, and I went, uh-oh, <laughs> I thought we were getting coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, that's not what's about to take place. <laughs> so I quickly put my pastor hat on, and I sat down next to him. And he said, Kirk, we've been friends for a couple of years. And I said, yeah, he'd been attending uh, Faith Church for a couple of years at that point. And, uh, and, and he said, I got to ask you something, though. He goes, something's just, just been, has been bothering me. And so he came to me with some verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And he said, I, I just wonder how in the world our church can have female pastors and female leaders and female teachers when you read these verses in 1 Corinthians, and he took me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. Let's go ahead and let's read these verses so you know the context of what we're talking about. He said, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Ouch. But it seems pretty clear. <laughs> and so this friend said to me, he said, Kirk, the church I came from before I began attending your church, they did this right. You don't. I said, oh. I said, um, can I ask you some questions? He said, sure. I said, okay. I said, um, the church you came from, did women ever speak in the church? He went, yeah. I said, oh then they didn't do this very well, did they? <laughs> I said, did the women have to wait till they got in the car on the way home to ask their husbands any questions they had? He goes, no. I said, then they didn't do this very well, did they? He didn't know what to make of that. And, and so then I, I probed and pushed a little further, and, 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 and I simply I said, I said, I just want to share with you what I have found in my experience. 
is that churches that tend to use these verses to say that women can't lead or women can't teach or women can't preach, they tend to not actually apply these verses. He said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, the challenge is, is these verses say that women should be silent and they shouldn't speak at all in church. But I said, but most every church has women teaching in their kids' ministry. You know why? And he goes, yeah, because men won't. <laughs> I said, well, there's some truth there. Um, <laughs> I would love to see more of our men serving in kids' ministry. Um, and I said, I said, yeah. And I said, but so what happens is they try to decide then what does that mean? And the problem is that they all can't even agree on what age is it that, that a male is now able to be taught by a female and when does that end, you know? So in some churches, women can teach boys up to the age of five. Some churches, they can teach them till 12. Some, it's 18. Some, it's until they leave their parents' basement. Um, that's not true. I made that one up. I don't know. I've not, I've not run into that church yet. Uh, and the problem is, is it's hard to figure out how in the world do you apply this. And no church does. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to sit in the tension of these verses for a moment. And here's where we're going to go. Whenever you come across Scripture... That is challenging like this. When you come across scripture that you go, I don't know what to do with that, or it doesn't really make sense, or you want to figure out, does this really fit? Is this really what it's saying? One of the best things that we can do is to back up. And what I mean by that is to step back from looking at just these two verses, and you need to, one, look at all the verses that are around it, understand the context. But even better than that sometimes is to back all the way up and look at the whole of scripture. So today we're going to talk about women and ministry. And I want to look at the whole of Scripture to see what does it say? What does it teach? What do we see all the way from the very beginning up through 1 Corinthians 14 where we find these verses? So to do this, let's jump all the way back, all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the beginning, to Adam and Eve. And I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds. Did, did I do this again? I did it. Oh, I did that first service too. Man, I'm so wrong. Okay, you know how I said uh, we get things wrong? Right, okay. So I literally did the exact same thing both services, and I thought I was on the wrong slide, and I'm not. All right, let's try this again. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God created human beings, male and female, and he created them to rule and to reign over the earth together so that they can lead together. One of the very first teachings in all of scripture about women is actually commanding them to lead, to rule, to reign. Do you see this? It says that God blessed them. So he made a male and female, and then he blessed them and said to them, not just to one of them, he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
And so men and women are to lead. Now, 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 I have a friend that his belief is, he says, he says, well, I'm fine if women lead as long as it's with their husband or with a male, with you know, somebody else that's in that authority position. And I, I tell them, well, that's, that's fine if you believe that. I disagree. But you can believe that as long as you're consistent in how you apply this. He said, what do you mean? And I said, if you're going to believe then that a woman can only lead if her husband or a male is with her, then the same is true of men. They can only lead if their wife or a female is with them. If you're going to use the scripture and apply it, then we have to be consistent with how we apply it. And, and so the truth of the matter is what I believe is that the scripture, what it's doing, and here's the fun thing about this, this is actually a command. This is a scriptural command from the book of Genesis telling us, so in other words, if you keep women from leading, you're disobeying what scripture is telling us to do. Now let's continue in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 now, let me show you a, a passage of scripture that is often used to say, this is why women can't be in charge. This is why they can't lead. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. We have this phrase, helper suitable. We need to understand what this means because people have used this as an objection to having women in leadership. She's, she's just a helper. She can't lead. Come on. Come on. So, so let's understand these words. Let's, let's look at these words and what the real meaning is. So we've shared this before, but just to help make sure that you follow along, whenever we come to words that are challenging to understand, what we need to do is to look at those words in their uh, earliest language that we have. So whenever you're in the Old Testament, Hebrew is what we have to look at. So you want to go back and look at the Hebrew word. If you're in the New Testament, you want to look at the Greek word, okay? So Genesis, first book in the Bible, it's in the Old Testament. So we want to look at the Hebrew words for helper suitable. Let's start with the word helper. And the Hebrew word for helper is the word ezer. Now, ezer is used 21 times in Scripture, all right? 21 times it's used in Scripture. Two times it's used in reference to Eve, okay? Three times it is used in reference to powerful military rescuers. Military rescuers who sweep in as an ezer and rescue somebody from something they could not rescue themselves from. Now, I just want you to go along with me for a moment and imagine yourself trapped somewhere. Doesn't matter where. Whatever your worst nightmare is. Welcome to church. And, 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 and uh, you are trapped and you cannot get out. And suddenly, there's a powerful military rescue team there to help you. And they are coming to rescue you. Now, when they come in to rescue you, do you picture this rescue going this way? where you tell them, thank you for coming. But now that you are my easer, you are under my leadership and authority, and I will tell you how this rescue is gonna go. No! You're like, please, thank you, yes, do whatever you need to do to get me out of here, because they're powerful military rescuers who are gonna come and save you from what you couldn't save yourself from. <laughs> so that's used three times for Ezra. What's interesting is how the other... 16 times are used. The word Ezer, 21 times in scripture, two times for Eve, three times for powerful military rescuers, 16 times it refers to God. 16 times scripture calls God our Ezer. He is our helper. Now, wouldn't it be strange for us to tell God 
hey God, I am so thankful that you're my Ezra and my helper. Now let me tell you how things are gonna work. <laughs> We're like, we know not to, you know, hey God, church today was great. And once we get in the car on the way home, you can ask any questions that you have of me about how it, uh. <laughs> We're like, that's, Arrogant, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. However, with Eve, we'll do that. Two times in reference to Eve, three times in reference to powerful military rescuers, 16 times in reference to God. Let me tell you something. The Hebrew word ezer is never used in the Bible to refer to a subordinate party, not once. So as we translate the word Ezer, understand it in its Hebrew, understand how it's used in scripture in other places, here's how I would suggest we understand the word. It can mean helper, but what kind of helper does it mean? It means a helper who is a rescuer or powerful ally who rescues because God is our Ezer. And this makes sense. It makes sense that Eve was a helper who was a rescuer for Adam. She rescued Adam from something Adam couldn't rescue himself from. You see, for the first time ever in creation, God created something and then said, this isn't good. God created Adam and he said, this isn't good for him to be alone. And what's interesting is what happens next in scripture is God tells Adam to go name the animals. <laughs> Imagine how long that took. God goes, this isn't good for you to be alone. Go introduce yourself to the animals. Let's see if one of them might work. Let's see if one of them can fit the need that you have. And guess what? When he finished, there was no Ezer there. And so Adam lays down to sleep and God gives him Eve, his Ezer, who rescued Adam from what Adam could not rescue himself from. <laughs> so that's the word helper. Now there's this other word there that says it was a suitable helper. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew word for suitable is neged. And, and neged, uh, in its fullest sense, uh, to be a neged, suitable, what that, that means is a face-to-face -face equal. Eyeball to eyeball. One who can stand up to the other. Are you getting a picture of how God is describing Eve in Scripture and in turn how God is describing women and their role? Eye to eye, face to face equal. One who can stand up to the other. Now you take the two words, suitable helper, neged ezer, and you put them together and what do you get as a suitable helper? A face to face equal who is a powerful rescuer. <laughs> you see, there is nothing weak or subordinate about the title that's given to Eve. But then Genesis 3 comes along. And in Genesis 3, things seem to change. In Genesis 3, something happens, something goes wrong. You see, Adam had been told not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life. God told him all the other trees are fair game. Don't eat from those two trees. But Adam and Eve go and they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They disobey God, and because they disobey, there are consequences to their sin. And we see these consequences in Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. It says this. 
To the woman, he, God, said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. A couple things I want to point out here. The first one is this. Two verses earlier than this, the snake, who was Satan, who manipulated and tricked them into sinning in this way, the snake was cursed. And in these verses, what I want you to notice and to see is that nowhere is Eve cursed. Nowhere is Adam cursed. The ground that Adam is going to work is cursed, but Adam is not. So I want you to see that. I want you to understand Adam and Eve were not cursed. The next thing then to notice is that God says to Eve that man will rule over woman. Now, he does not say, and this is the way it should be. He doesn't say, this is the way I'm prescribing it to take place. He's not saying, this is what I want or command. What he's actually doing is he's saying, because of sin, part of the consequence is that because of sin, God is predicting that this is now how the world will work. He's saying, because of this sin, it will now take place that man will rule over woman. This is the first time in Genesis that God says anything about the man being over the woman. And it's post-sin. It's only as a direct result of sin. It is not God's ideal. And and we see the reality of this throughout history, not just in the church. I mean, think about it. Women weren't even allowed to vote in the U.S. until 1920. The tendency of the world tends to be exactly what God predicted, not what God wants, but what he predicted as a result of sin. And it's played out just like that. And so what's important is we continue to read scripture to remember that God is in the business of redeeming sin. Praise Jesus. He's in the business of redeeming the way that we see and view women. Let me tell you about a time that my wife and I were part of a life group. A life group uh, is a group that we have here at Faith Church and they're groups that get together and study the Bible together. They, 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 they encourage one another. They challenge one another or pray together and that kind of thing. And, and, and so for a long time, my wife and I have oftentimes been in life groups. And she has this really annoying habit that she does to me in our life groups. She will pinch me and kick me. Right? I know. She's not a good person sometimes, okay? Now, in this instance, she's right which is most of the time the way it goes. Uh, But here's what happens in life group, is that if she deems that I'm talking too much, she will pinch me. And if I don't shut up, she will kick me. Now, the first time that this began to happen, I thought, now, stop it, woman. I am smart and funny, and these people want to listen to me. But I have this nasty habit where I sometimes turn life groups into many sermons by Kirk. (laughs) And nobody wants that. They're like, we listened to you this morning. We're done. We'd like to hear from other people. And so she pinches and kicks me until I realize what I'm doing. Now, the reality is, is the first time when this stuff began to happen, I would get annoyed with it. 
I've now realized that the truth is she's right. I have to be careful. My tendency is to be somebody who overtalks, who goes too far, who says too much, who doesn't share the stage and let other people have space to, to talk and to share. And so what I have begun to realize is that rather than getting mad at her, and instead, she is my neged ezer. She is a powerful ally who is willing to stand face to face with me or pinch to pinch with me, <laughs> but help me be a better person. And it's in my sin that I want to tell her, how dare you? And I find myself thankful that God is in the business of redeeming sin. Next in scripture, let's continue through the Old Testament to see just how does God view women in leadership? For example, does God ever put a female in a position of leadership? Does he ever anoint them and say, this is my direction, this is what I want? I'm glad you asked. That's an excellent question. Let me take you to the book of Judges, chapter four, verse four. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lipidoth, was leading Israel at that time. Hmm, interesting. A woman in leadership? And the word there for leading can also be translated as judging. She was a judge for them, an authority. She was the judge and leader over all of Israel. When I say all of Israel, I don't mean just the women. She was the leader and the judge over all of Israel, the women and the men. And she is there because God appointed her and put her there. So this is God's doing. If women aren't supposed to be in leadership, then someone needs to let God know. <laughs> or maybe, just maybe, the verses we started today with in 1 Corinthians, maybe there's some context there that explain what's really going on. So let's go back to those verses in 1 Corinthians. But before we do, let me say this, because I need to acknowledge something. There are several verses in Scripture that people will use from time to time to say that women cannot lead, they cannot teach, they cannot preach. One of the most common verses is in the book of 1 Timothy. And here's the reality of how long our sermons are. We don't have enough time for me to hit every single verse and give you the counter-argument discussion to it, explain all the context and culture around it. So here's what I'll offer to do. Because I think this is such an important conversation to be had in our church and, and honestly in churches all over. If you are struggling with this, if you'd like to understand it better, if you're going, hold on, wait, 1 Timothy is the one I've always struggled with or help me through these other passages and you want to go deeper, I will gladly sit and talk with you about that. Because I recognize that for some of you, you may have been raised in a tradition where what I'm sharing, you're going, if I were to make this pivot, this is a huge pivot. I recognize that. I wouldn't preach this if I wasn't completely certain and confident 100% that this is what God shows us in Scripture, what he teaches us, what he leads us to. In fact, I'm going to continue to show you even more evidence of it. But I just want to recognize that for some of you, what I'm asking you is big change for you. I'm willing to meet, and I'm willing to keep talking if that's helpful. So with that, Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Back to those verses. But before we read those verses again, let me go eight verses in front of those. To 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. Okay, watch what Paul writes here. He says, when then, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so the church may be built up. First of all, the assumption of this passage is that everyone has something to say. 
Everyone has something to contribute, men and women, brothers and sisters. In fact, all throughout 1 Corinthians, this bears out. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you will see women praying in church. You will see women prophesying in church. The book of Acts tells us that your sons and daughters will prophesy. Well, to prophesy is akin to preaching. It means to teach and to preach. And so women are preaching and they're teaching in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians tells us that they'll have spiritual gifts and all the spiritual gifts are available to them. Every single one of them, there's no difference between, it's not like here's the masculine gifts, here's the feminine gifts, Uh uh-uh. Here's the spiritual gifts available to all. And so in the book of 1 Corinthians, you see women preaching, you see women praying, you see women leading. (laughs) But then all of a sudden, eight verses after this, Paul says women shouldn't even talk in church. (laughs) And you go, Paul, like, was Paul, like, what were you on, Paul? What's going on? Like, this doesn't make sense. You're contradicting yourself. So let me read those verses to you that we started today again. Let me read them to you, and then we're going to work through understanding the context of what's going on here. So here's the verses we started at. This is verse 26, okay? Women are teaching. They're giving us words of instruction, revelations, right? And then eight verses later, Paul says this. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Hmm. What in the world's going on here? Let's talk for a moment about the context, because context is always important in understanding Scripture. The context is, as I said, women are already speaking and preaching in the church. So why is it suddenly disgraceful for them to even talk? Because that seems to be what Paul is saying. It looks like that's what Paul has just written in the Scriptures. Until you read the very next verse. See, again, we have to be so careful to not just take one verse or two verses out and then go, boom, that's it, let's go off of that. We need to see it as a whole. Watch the very next verse. Verse 36 says this. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? Now, some of you may be going, okay, I still don't get it. There's a little article in the Greek language here. It begins in verse 36. At the front of verse 36, there's this little Greek article that we don't have in the English language. It does not exist. This is where we have challenges when we try to translate from one language to another. Sometimes there's words that don't exist. Also, sometimes there's articles. And when I say article, what I mean is like a comma or a colon or a semicolon. It means one thing in an English language, but another language, they don't even have those articles. And so there's an article there that doesn't exist. The closest thing we can come up to is it's kind of like a question mark followed by an exclamation point. And what it essentially is like is it's kind of like yelling out, what? (laughs) That's kind of what this article means. What? (laughs) That's the closest that we have. For for those of you who love this kind of thing, if you're like, well, Kirk, I've never seen it in my Bible. It's not in your Bible. Because the translators didn't know how to put it into your Bible. So if you love this kind of thing, what you need to do is go get an interlinear translation. Okay, And if you go get an interlinear translation and look in there, you will find its article, this, 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 this Greek article, that the best translation for it is this idea. What? <laughs> so what, is, what does this mean? It's almost as if Paul is taken aback by what he's just written in verses 34 and 35. And he goes, What? What did the, did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people who it has reached? But why would he say it that way? You have to understand what 1 Corinthians is. 
It's a letter written by Paul to the church. But it's not just a letter written by Paul to the church. You see, the church in Corinth wrote Paul a letter first. The book of 1 Corinthians is Paul responding to the letter they had written him. So, so they had written him about some of the issues they were having in their church. They'd written him about, here's some of the things we're doing in our church. Here's some of the things that are taking place in our church. And then he's writing back to them, answering the questions they have. And so it's not uncommon then, in a letter like this, to quote back to somebody what they wrote and then give an answer about it. And so what you have here is you have throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, women teaching, leading, praying, participating, all the spiritual gifts. You have Paul acknowledging that in, in verse 26 of chapter 14. Then suddenly, on, in verses 34 and 35, you've got this weird situation where all of a sudden Paul goes, well, women should be silent, not speak in church, and let their husbands explain things to them. And I'm telling you that I believe that what Paul is doing here is quoting back to the church what they wrote to him in their letter first. The reason I believe that is because of the article that comes next that simply says, what? <laughs> or did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people this has reached? Do you see how that suddenly makes it make more sense? Otherwise, Paul's just contradicting himself. Not only that, but then if you keep reading a few more verses later, verse 39 of the exact same chapter, watch what Paul says in verse 39. He says, therefore, my what? Brothers and sisters, men and women, be eager to prophesy. Be eager to preach. So, so four verses later, he says, men and women, go preach. Right after he told the women not to talk. So, so you have to understand that when we try to understand these things, you need to look at the whole of Scripture, which seems to be elevating women. It seems like it was God's desire, God's plan for women to be in leadership just as much as it was for men to be in leadership. And when you come to a verse like this, there's these challenges of this little article that's missing that makes it suddenly make so much more sense. And so a verse that's been used for years to try to denigrate women and to say, no, you cannot lead, no, you cannot teach actually is saying the opposite. Paul is saying, whoa, what? Come on, guys, you know better. Brothers and sisters, men and women, go preach the word of God. Men and women, go preach the gospel to the people who need to hear the gospel. Some of you might be going, but Kirk, I, are there other examples are there, women that are, are there examples of women who are leading in Scripture? What about the New Testament? You gave us Deborah from the Old Testament, but what if that's an exception and God just doesn't tell us? Are there any other examples of women leading and teaching? Well, I'll tell you what, there's actually several throughout the New Testament. And shame on us in the church in general for not pointing these out often enough that you would know of these other examples. But I think these examples actually make the strongest case for what we're talking about today. We don't have time to go through every single one of them, so I'm going to give you the scripture and the brief understanding of it. You can go back and you can look at these and read these on your own if you want, but here we go. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 18 says, sons and daughters will prophesy. Your sons and daughters will preach. Men and women will preach and will prophesy. Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila, I love this story, Priscilla and Aquila, they're a husband and wife team who do ministry together. And what's interesting about this is that they're mentioned seven times in Scripture, all right? And Priscilla, uh, Priscilla is the wife. Five of the seven times they're mentioned in Scripture, she's mentioned first. Now, for us, that may not seem like a big deal, but in the ancient Near East, this was a way of saying who was the leader. 
Whoever is mentioned first is leading. It mattered to them. This was significant, okay? And so she's listed first five or seven times. What I love about that is it means they're both leading. It means they're both taking turns leading. But one of my favorite stories about Priscilla and Aquila is there's in Acts chapter 18, they confront Apollos. Apollos is a teacher. At one point in the New Testament, he's called one of the best teachers in all of the New Testament, in all of Scripture. And Priscilla and Aquila confront Apollos and correct his teaching. Guess when they correct his teaching, guess whose name is listed first? <laughs> Priscilla's. This female corrected the teaching of one of the greatest teachers we have in Scripture. Acts chapter 21, verses 8 through 9, talks about Phoebe. Now, just for clarity, this is not Phoebe from Friends. <laughs> It would be interesting to go to a church led by her. Uh, it would, interesting is probably the only word. Um, it would be interesting. <laughs> this is not what we're talking about. But what's fun about Phoebe in Acts chapter 21 is there's a word used to describe Phoebe. It's the exact same word that is used to describe Timothy, who we call a pastor. Phoebe was leading a church just like Timothy was leading a church. Phoebe was referred to as pastor just like Timothy was referred to as pastor. <laughs> And then there's Junia from Acts chapter 20, or from Romans 16. <laughs> yeah, you know what? This isn't right. Hold on. Just for clarity, Acts 21, 8 through 9, there's four prophets who are mentioned, not Phoebe. Phoebe's not there. And all four prophets are women. Romans 16 is Phoebe. Phoebe's mentioned in Romans 16. She's called a pastor just like Timothy. Also in Romans 16, Junia is mentioned. And Junia is a female, and Junia is called an apostle. What's interesting about Junia is that depending on the translation, which Bible you have, is some scriptures, instead of Junia, it will say Junio. It has changed Junia to a male name because the people that are translating it don't believe women can be in leadership. And the reason why this is interesting is that the word Junia was an incredibly popular and common name in this time. You can find the name throughout other extra-biblical writings all over the place. The name Junio is actually not a name that you can find anywhere, anywhere from this time. It was changed from an A to an O to represent masculine. But as far as history knows, the only mention of anybody ever with the name Junio is in the translations of Scripture that take what was written Junia. You can go to the Dead Sea Scrolls that is written Junia female, and they have changed it to an O. Because so much is the work that some are doing to say women cannot lead and teach. This is why it is so important for us, church, to make it clear that women can teach, that women can lead, and the church needs them. Let me give you one last one, what I think might be the most powerful one of all. Matthew chapter 28, verse 10. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has died. He's resurrected. As he comes back to life, do you know who finds him first? It's a group of ladies. The ladies find Jesus, and Jesus tells them to go and to tell the men that he was dead but is risen again. Church, that's the gospel. That's the message of Scripture. That's the message of Jesus Christ that we come to hear and to know. Do you understand the first time the gospel was ever preached, it was preached by a group of women to men? Oh, and Jesus commanded it. <laughs> he told them to. Brings us to our so what moment. What does this mean? What do we do with this? Where do we go with this truth? 
All that we've learned today is why I'm so confident and so passionate about understanding that women can teach and women can lead and women can pastor and women can be lead pastors. Women can get things done. Women can be successful leaders and they can do all these things in the church and out of the church. But it's not just that. It's the fact that we need women to be leaders in the church and out of the church. We need the voice of females to be heard. We need them at the highest levels. The church needs this because it's always been God's design that this is how it would work. And so today's pivot for some of you is huge. For some of you, it's pivoting in how you understand scripture. To realize that the truth of the matter is, is that God has always elevated women, always desired to see them in leadership positions. But the biggest pivot today is that I believe there might be some women who are here today who God has called you to ministry. God has called you to pastor, to be a missionary, to lead in a nonprofit organization, to step into spiritual leadership in a way like maybe you never have before. And maybe you never knew you could. And I believe today that there may be some of you who God is saying, I'm calling you. I need you in leadership in my church and out of my church too, in all realms. So how we're gonna close is simply this. I'm just gonna ask, are there any women here today who would say, that's what God's putting on my heart? I believe I might be called to step into ministry to pastor, to teach, to lead, to be a missionary. And if that's you, what I would love to ask you to do is to stand where you're at and give us as a church the privilege and the honor to support you and pray over you because we believe in you. So that's what I want to ask. Is there anyone here today, any women who would say, you know what, I believe that's the call God's putting on my life to lead, to teach, to pastor, and missionary. If that's you, would you stand? Would you just stand where you're at and let us pray for you and over you? I know that this is a big moment because maybe for some of you, you never thought you could. But if Holy Spirit's tugging on you, pulling on you, if he's speaking to you, don't be afraid in boldness to stand and say, God, I'll answer that call. God, if that's what you want, I'll do. Is there anyone who would say that's me today? Amen. Praise Jesus. Anybody else? Amen. Hallelujah. Any others that would stand and say, that's me. That's me. Yes. Anybody else? Oh, no, stay standing. I know you don't love it, but stay standing. Oh, we got, oh, praise Jesus. Church, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask, if you'd look around, if you're comfortable with it, if you see somebody standing, would you do me a favor? Would you, would you just go next, put your hand on them? Okay, not everybody, but just a few. And, and, and I want you to silently pray over them as I pray over them, okay? 
But these are people that are feeling called to ministry. These are people that are feeling like God's put it on their heart. And I want to lift them up. And so we've got one over here and back here and here and here and then back there. And let's make sure that everybody's got somebody praying over them, please. You don't have to know their name. God knows who they are. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, from the beginning, your design was for men and women to lead. From the beginning, it was your desire because you know that we're better together. You know that we're better with all the voices, with the diversity of voices. And God, today, you see some women all around the room that are stepping up and standing in and saying, okay, God, you're calling me and I'll answer that call. They may not know what it looks like. They may not know what it means, but they're just saying, God, here I am, send me. God, I am willing. And so right now, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would just bless them, encourage them. May they sense and feel nothing but the love of their church around them. A church that says, we believe in you. We believe that God has called you and is going to use you. In the name of Jesus, I come against any spirit that might try to lie to them and say, no, 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 you're not good enough. No, 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 you can't do it. That's not God's call. In the name of Jesus, we come against that. And I pray right now that your Holy Spirit's voice would be the loudest voice they hear in their heads and in their hearts and in their minds. And may they know the Holy Spirit is saying, I love you and I've called you. I love you and I've called you. I love you and I've called you. Father, I thank you for those that you've called this morning. And it's in Jesus' great and mighty name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen.